I have a bit of a different kind of a Christmas message. <clears throat> I told you about five weeks ago, but for those of you that are visiting with us today, I, I want to give you just a, a snippet of background so that you understand why we're launching in in such an odd place. Um, about five weeks ago, we began a series of messages on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God the Son becoming flesh, a human being and dwelling in our midst. And in looking at the incarnation, we looked at s several aspects of what it meant. Uh, who is Jesus and uh, how did he come and why did he come? And uh, we looked at Jesus, the eternal son. That He was always with the Father, face to face with the Father and with the Holy Spirit as a part of our holy triune God. And then we looked at the things that Jesus willingly laid aside, uh, those uh, attributes of His divine nature which He did not give up in a sense of losing them, but He temporarily laid them aside so that he could come to this earth uh, as a human being and live and model for us what life was intended to be as God created us and filled us with his very own spirit. And then we looked at what it was for him to enter the womb of Mary and to become uh, incarnate. That's when the moment actually took place when the Holy Spirit hovered over her and planted within Mary's womb, the virgin womb, the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Adam in every sense, and uh, exactly like ours. And then last week, uh, we explored His humble birth in essentially a stable, a stall, uh, and being laid in a feeding trough and how he uh, submitted himself to tremendous humility. Not born like a king at all, but born uh, in uh, humility and in poverty to begin his earthly life with us. So today, we're kind of completing the circle. And today I want to talk about uh, what it was like for Jesus to live as a man. You know, one of the things that we so often do in our consideration of Jesus Christ is we maximize His deity and we minimize His humanity. And in doing so, we deprive ourselves of a great deal of understanding that Jesus has come not only to set an example and to show us how life is to be lived, but to be a resource for us in living out our lives as He intended. And by minimizing His humanity, we distance Him from ourselves as if He is in some uh, different category uh, of, of personality that we could never touch or be like. And yet, the Scripture encourages us to be followers and imitators of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, the, the, 
the challenge for us as followers of Christ is to hold his deity and his humanity in equal dynamic tension. Um, he is fully God, but he is also fully man. And in the fullness of his humanity, the scripture says that he faced the very same things that you and I face on a regular basis. We find this in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. If you'd like to open your Bibles to that passage, Hebrews, toward the end of the New Testament, chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. The Scripture says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we're kind of jumping in in the middle of Hebrews as well. And uh, the writer of Hebrews is making an appeal primarily to Jewish believers in their rich heritage about the, the priesthood and the temple and the sacrificial system and how Jesus is really the fulfillment of all of those symbolic things that the Jews practiced uh, throughout the centuries. And so, it's in that context that he calls him the high priest. And the function and role of a priest is to intercede between God and human beings. A priest is the intercessor. He's the go-between. He's the one uh, who uh, stands before God on behalf of the people and, first of all, in the Jewish uh, form of worship, as God gave it to them, offers a sacrifice for sin, but also prays for God's mercy for the people. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that when we come to Jesus, we do not come to some distant God who is way out yonder in the universe somewhere, uh, beyond our comprehension. But we come to one who has lived our lives, who has experienced our temptations, who has faced our trials, who understands what it's like to walk uh, the paths of this earth with all of their attendant risks and dangers and temptations and therefore, he says, we can find a grace to help in our time of need because he's one who understands. He's one who can sympathize with us and, and connect with us at the place where we are facing difficulty. And so, he says, we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is an area where many, many Christians 
have a very difficult time relating to the humanity of Jesus Christ. He faced life as a normal human being made in the likeness of Adam with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and from birth until his death on the cross he walked through life dealing with trials and temptations in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because he was God the Son but because he was a man filled with the Spirit of God, dependent upon the Spirit of God, resting in the Spirit of God. He did so, so that we could enter into his lifestyle. If he could not offer us the same privilege, the same source of power, the same indwelling spirit, then it would have all been meaningless. But he lived in such a way, and when he got ready to leave, he said to his disciples, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that I have. He has been with you, but he will be in you. And when he comes in you, he will live through you, the life that I have lived. So that you will have that same power. So we are enabled, therefore, to actually follow Jesus in all of the difficulties and temptations and challenges of life. And when they face us, we are able to cry out to Him who understands, and to the Holy Spirit who empowers to give us grace to be triumphant, to be successful in the midst of the temptation. Paul tells us, uh, writes to the Corinthians, there is no temptation that ever comes to you, but such as is common to every human being. And with every temptation, God will make a way of escape that you can endure it. In other words, that you can resist it, that you can stand firm against it. And so, there's the promise of God to us that we can have the same indwelling power as our Lord Jesus Christ when faced with temptation as born-again believers, that He can empower us to resist and to stand firm against the wiles of the enemy. In what ways was Jesus tempted? Well, I think we can, first of all, categorize His temptation in three general ways. Uh, many of you that have been around a while have heard me talk about this before. But there is a direct connection between what Adam and Eve faced at the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden and what Jesus faced in the wilderness and what John in his first letter, chapter 2, 
explains to us are the common areas of temptation that human beings struggle with. Those areas are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are the three general categories of all sin. You, you can take any sin that confronts you and you can put it in one of those three areas. The lust of the flesh is the temptation to fulfill our physical needs outside of the will and parameters that God has established. The lust of the eyes... Well, we Americans ought to be very familiar with that. The lust of the eyes is materialism. Our desire for things. Um, I was kind of interested. I picked up a little bit of snippets here and there uh, Friday evening as we uh, went to visit with um, our grandchildren and we took them some Christmas gifts. And uh, we were told that uh, the little girl, Callie, was into ponies, and she wanted ponies. So, um, so we, uh, uh, Stephen had purchased for her a little kit of ponies that you could comb the hair, you know, and she was all excited about that. So she opens the package, and she is all excited about the ponies. And it wasn't a minute before she started talking about the next thing she wanted. And I thought, wow, <laughs> it doesn't take long. You know, we're just kind of wired that way. I, give me, give me, give me, I want. And, and we're always looking for the next thing. The lust of the eyes is that we want everything we see. Well, maybe not everything, but... We all have our, you know, weak spots. Um, I, I was following a pickup truck the other day, and it said, My Toy Store, Home Depot. <laughs> and I thought, that wouldn't appeal to some people, but <laughs> if you drive a dually pickup and you're a builder or something, that has great appeal, you know. So, the lust of the eyes is, is all the things that fit in the bag of materialism. But it can be as basic as the desire for clothing and food and shelter and transportation. It doesn't have to be uh, all the toys and gimmicks and gadgets. It can be very simple needs that we want outside of God's will and purposes for our lives. You know, Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Are you sure you want to follow me? Because there's a, there's a price to pay. And then, the boastful pride of life has to do with our desire to be just above the next person, to climb the ladder of success, to get on top, to, to, to have the power, to, to be in a position of influence and control, and, and our desire to move up that. Uh, boy, this year in politics, if there was ever 
a, a dramatization of that lust, we watched it unfold in the scene of American politics this year. The grasping and desire for power is that, that boastful pride of life. And the scripture says that when Adam and Eve were tempted and, and the devil appealed to Eve and said to her, um, you know, God is withholding something good from you, telling you you can't eat this tree. And she began to contemplate what he was saying, and she looked at the tree. And she studied it and realized that it appeared to be good for food, the lust of the flesh, and that it was beautiful to look at, the lust of the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise, the lust of the flesh. And so she reached out and ate and gave it to her husband, who was, by the way, standing there with her. How else could she have handed it to him? And he was uh, kind of a silent, complicit partner in this departure. You notice later on when God comes and says, What have you done, Adam? And Adam says, You know that woman you made? It's her fault. And so, that was the thing that tripped up the first couple. And the first Adam. When Jesus was in the wilderness, He faced in the most intense of times the same three temptations. You know, as we study the life of Christ and His development and we follow through with that, when he was 12 years old at the temple, he was amazing the, the teachers of the law. Jesus obviously already knew a great deal. And when his parents came looking for him, you remember the story, they had gone several days, you know, at least a day, and they missed him and they went back. So it was about three days by the time they got back. And when they got back, he said to them, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? You know, I think it's clear that by that time, Jesus had an awareness of his relationship with God in terms of father. But I don't know when it was that Jesus became fully aware of the unfolding destiny of his life to go to the cross as the Lamb of God. But I can feel fairly confident that by the time he went into the wilderness after his baptism, that he and the Father spent those 40 days in deep communion about the next several years of his life and how they would unfold. And I think by then, Jesus was uh, clearly aware that a cross was in his future and that he was going to give his life as the Lamb of God a ransom for many. That he would die on the cross for our sin, the just for the unjust, to pay the price that we could not pay because the wages of sin is death. 
And Jesus Christ was going to be the one to take our place and pay for our sin. At the end of the 40 days, the Scripture says He became hungry. If you've done any study on fasting, or if you've tried to to do an extended fast, you are probably aware that after three to five days, your natural cycle of hunger just stops. You're not hungry anymore. You don't have any particular desire to eat. And your body has made a switch and it is now consuming the uh, excess um, stores that you have tucked away in your fat cells. And uh, your body is living off of that. But when all of the reserves have been consumed, we get hungry again. And it's a different kind of hunger. It's the hunger that our healthy tissues are now suffering and we need to eat or we're going to damage ourselves. In fact, if we don't eat, we will ultimately die of starvation. And so, that return of hunger is intense. And the Scripture says that after the 40 days, Jesus became hungry. That was really hungry. And the devil came to him in that time of weakness and said, you see these stones? You're you're the Son of God. You can make these stones bread. No problem. The lust of the flesh. And Jesus responded, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, why don't you jump off of here? You don't have to go to a cross. If you want to be the king of Israel and you want everybody to follow you, why don't you just jump off of here? God will give His angels protection over you and they will catch you and you will land in the town square unscathed. And everyone will recognize how great you are and they will follow you. And Jesus responded again, you will not tempt the Lord your God. And then, finally, the devil took him to a place of vision and brought before his eyes all the kingdoms of the world, everything you could possibly ever want. And said, I will give you everything you can see. It's all yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. You know, we face that temptation all the time. Let me come back to that in a minute. Jesus looked at all the kingdoms of the world and He said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and Him only shalt thou serve. I will not bow down to you, Satan. We may not realize it, but every time we succumb to temptation, we bow down to Satan as if he is our God. And that thing that he has offered us becomes an idol. 
And the scripture says that Jesus faced temptation in all of those same categories. But, but let's be real for a moment. It wasn't just in the wilderness that Jesus faced temptation. He grew up as a boy in Nazareth. That was a rough and tumble town. He grew up there as a boy. He became a teenager in Nazareth. He had a relatively normal family life with brothers and sisters that he grew up with. (laughs) And there was the typical sibling goings-on uh, in that family, whether uh, he was outside of the melee or not, uh, there was still the normal family life. Jesus began to work with his father in a carpenter shop, and uh, somewhere along the line, we lose track of Joseph, presuming that he has died, and Jesus takes over the family business. And as a businessman, He faced the competitive market. And there were opportunities to cut corners and to do deals and and to to avoid taxes and all the kinds of things that, that business owners face. Jesus was confronted with those opportunities. And then as uh he left the carpenter's shop and emerged as a prophet and a teacher, and Israel began to follow him. He dealt with the the the, the sinister and uh, wicked gossip of the state of his birth. Isn't this the carpenter's son? And isn't Mary his mother? In other words, this is an illegitimate child born out of wedlock. And Jesus faced all of that, and he faced the ridicule of the Pharisees and the challenges uh, of many in the crowd. Not all of them, obviously, because they followed him. But we need to recognize that Jesus knows what it's like to walk the paths of this earth in our shoes and face the things that we face and the temptations that present themselves and the opportunities to do it another way. And it's always tougher to do it God's way. The rewards are great, but they're often not immediate. And sometimes the reward is as simple as being able to go to bed and go to sleep at night with a clear conscience. But Jesus faced all of those things. And He won the victory every time. Every time He was confronted. Every time He was tempted. Every time... Uh, the, the, the test became intense. Jesus withstood it. A lot of people say, well, he can't really understand what temptation is like because, after all, he was God and he didn't sin. And there we go, minimizing his humanity again. 
the reality is that Jesus experienced temptation as most of us do not, unless you are winning the battle. Because if you think about the tempter coming at you, he turns up the heat as you turn up the resistance. And the, the more you resist the temptation, the more pressure the enemy brings. Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted with all that Satan can throw at you. Until the devil is exhausted. And he has stood the test and won the victory. And so, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest. This Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, who invites us to trust Him as our Lord and Savior, to to turn from our sin and embrace Him and trust Him as Lord and Savior. From that day forward, we have Him as our High Priest, one who understands our every weakness, one who knows our need, and one who will come to our rescue. We will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. He will come every time to our rescue when we reach out to Him and show us how He did it and demonstrate for us and empower us to live the Spirit-filled life. Do you have that walk with Jesus today? Don't make Him some distant, removed God from your life way out beyond our reach. But see Him as the One who will never leave you nor forsake you, who walks beside you, who knows your every weakness, and who will give you strength and power in every trial. Know Him as your best friend. You don't need to be afraid of Him. He's already paid for your sin. If you trusted Him as your Savior, your sins have been forgiven. You don't need to be afraid of Him. He has taken our judgment on the cross. So you can come to Him freely and boldly and say, I'm in trouble and I need help. And He is more than glad to give it. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are so close to us, that You know the needs of our lives, and and You you see the trials that we face, and You have promised that You would meet us at every turn, that You would stand with us in every trial, that You would give us victory in a way of escape. Thank You that You do not expect more of us than You are willing to do for us. And we give You praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.